It's the uh, stuff of no few science fiction plot lines. You have a visitor come amidst the people from another dimension. You have these beings. Uh, it's, it's an old story. Um, some of you perhaps are familiar with it, and I think maybe there have been a movie or two attempting to recreate this idea. These beings in one world, a two-dimensional world. Think back to your geometry studies many, many years ago, I know for some of us, not so much for others of us, but two-dimensional beings now, living and inhabiting one world, visited by this other being from another dimension, and this one is a three-dimensional being. Now think about how that's going to work from a, just a geometry uh, point of view. You've got creatures who are accustomed to everything as just two-dimensional flatness, encountering a being of three-dimensional fullness. Now what does that mean? That means these two-dimensional creatures can only perceive, can only sense, can only interact and engage with, but a small part, a fraction, a portion, literally a plane, a plane of this fuller three-dimensional being. They cannot hope to take him in. They cannot hope, they cannot begin to comprehend him. And it would be foolishness to think that they could because, of course, he is just too great. Well, it's something like that with us and Jesus. We are the flat ones. The two-dimensional beings trying to take in his three-dimensional fullness. We can see, but at best, a small part, uh, but a portion, a limited portion, uh, but a plane. We cannot comprehend him. We cannot take him in. It would be foolish to think that we could. He's much too great. And I bring this up simply for, for this reason, and that is because oftentimes we come to the gospel text with very flat, two-dimensional assumptions of who Jesus is. And passages like the one we're about to read just blow that up. They just really blow up our two-dimensional, flat understandings of who Jesus is. If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 15. We're pressing on in this series. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the first book of the New Testament. Chapter 15. Um, we were in just a short passage uh, there last week. Um, we are in 15, actually a longer passage, excuse me. Last week was shorter, two weeks ago. Matthew 15, 21 to 28 is where we are. Uh, Jesus in this encounter with a woman who is described as being a Canaanite woman. And we'll unpack that uh, here in just a few minutes. Let's read the passage first. Hear now the word of God. Matthew 15, starting at verse 21, on through verse 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, 
Help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Did that blow up your assumptions? It should. We need to pray. Let's do that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these few minutes that we have here together this morning. Um, we certainly, I was going to say perhaps, certainly come with our two-dimensional assumptions and preconceptions about who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this case, how the Son Jesus Christ, Messiah, uh, engages with us. Uh, we come with some very truncated, flat, deflated, um, narrow, small, um, very immature understanding of, of who you are. And then, and then all of that, and we, need to be grown, we need to be stretched. We need to have our eyes broadened that we would see the magnificence, indeed, the full-orb, three-dimensional reality of who our Savior is. Uh, we pray that you'd help us. Don't give us too much all at once. We can't take it. But give us what we need here this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. You learn a lot about someone by how they respond to a need. You learn a lot about someone in, by simply how they respond to a need. Let me tell you a story, a true story. Years ago, uh, Sarah and I were settling in in St. Louis, preparing for our years of seminary. We were facing our own personal housing crisis, meaning we needed another place to live. And I won't go into all the details there. It's a long, crazy story. Uh, but we were, within a short order, going to be out on the street if we didn't find another place to set up shop. So that's welcome to seminary and life in St. Louis. And so around this time, there is a reception just before the start of the first full semester. There is this uh, reception for all the new students and the spouses and the faculty. And there I am, and I have the opportunity to finally meet this gentleman that I've heard so much about. His name is Jerem Bars. Now, that may, may not be familiar to many of you. He, it ought to be. I will just say that. Uh, even at that point, I knew that Jerem had, had worked and studied with for no few years with the late, great Francis Schaeffer at Labrie. And Jerem, even at that time, to say nothing of now, uh, was known, and widely, rightly so and widely so, as a, as a fellow with a great keen insight into a whole host of different issues. So my point being, here's little old me, still, then, little old me at this reception talking with Jerem Bars. And this is one of the first things he said to me. I've heard about your dilemma. How can I help? You learn a lot about a person and how they respond to a need. You see that especially here in our text, this encounter between Jesus and this Canaanite woman. Now, we don't, we're not sure. We're not sure of what exactly all she knew of him and how it was, certainly that she had come to know what she knew 
of him. We know, of course, she knows enough to come to him, right? She's caught word somehow, first century social media. Uh, she's caught word somehow that, that he's in the region, and so she goes to him. She knows enough to do that. She knows enough to call him Lord, but we need to be careful there because that could just be in that context. I know we wouldn't use that title like that way today, but in that context, that could possibly just be meant as a term of respect. But then she also refers to him as the son of David. And at the very least, she has some understanding of this Jewish deliverer that is to come uh, from the line of David, a long-awaited kingly figure who's going to arrive on the scene with a royal scepter, and at the same time, as the prophet said, healing in his hands. We don't know how she knows what she knows, but she knows at least that much, and she's there, and she's counting on that. Him being who he is. Jesus as the son of David. She's counting on that. My friends, we need to do the same thing. We need to understand who he is as the son of David and look to him, count on him in exactly the same way. And, and we see that here in this passage. Um, we see that coming out in at least these three ways. We need to look to him for these, these three things. First, for his mercy. Secondly, for faith. And thirdly, for love. I'm going to unpack that as we go. But first, we need to be looking to him as the son of David, recognizing that he is our one true hope. As the son of David, he is our one true hope. And there we have to be looking to him for mercy, for faith, and for love. All right, let's look at these in turn. First, looking to him. What does this mean? What does it mean to look to him for mercy? We see this in what he does in response to her need in the course of this exchange between them. What is her need? That's, that's worth unpacking here just for a moment. Well, she is faced with a demon. Uh, meaning that she is faced with a, a being, a very real being, uh, that, that represents a whole host of beings, the reality of, a, of evil in the spiritual realm. And, and please understand, this is not just some mythological, you know, these people, if they only understood modern medicine. No, 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 no. Don't, put your, don't get on those high horse and think so much of ourselves and so little of them. You can see it even in the gospel text. They understood the difference between demonic activity and physical affliction. However, sometimes the one could lead to the other. But they're two different things. So that's what she's faced with. That's what she's faced with. And, and by the way, this is very personal. Because this is not a neighbor, a stranger. This is her daughter. This is her daughter who's being oppressed by this demon. And so she comes with this need. And then we therein naturally, as only a mother could, we hear her cry. We hear her cry. You see this in verses uh, 22, 23. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. This is a persistent cry on her 
part. It's not just kind of a one-time shout-out. Even the verb tense, you can kind of read between the lines and get that sense, but even the, the verb tense in the Greek makes it clear. She gets continually crying out. And then you pick it up just simply in the disciples. The disciples are so undone by this, they plead with Jesus to help her out simply so they, they don't have to listen to her anymore. So she is pleading, and this is a persistent pleading and cry, and she is pursuing. She is not willing to be put off by Jesus' silence or by his seeming coldness, and we'll get to that in a minute. But she is pressing she is pressing and she is pursuing and she is pressing into him. And what happens? The only one who could act, the only one who could do anything does and her daughter is healed. And what we learn in that, just simply this much, is that she's looking to Jesus for mercy. And we need to learn to do the same thing. The very same thing. Friends, our, our need is so much greater than we know. For every one of us here in this room, your need, my need, our need is so much greater, so much more profound than we dare know or admit even to ourselves to say nothing of, of people around us. I mean, we, we come in here, I, look, I, I recognize how I'm dressed. We come in wearing our Sunday best, and that is often a facade. It's an I really wonder if it would do us well to come and dress in our Sunday worst because it might be more honest. We dare not look at this situation and think of her need and, the, and, and think, oh, that's just so extreme. She's an exception. That's why she needed Jesus. No. She's not an exception. Her need is just more obvious. It's just more on the surface. It just can't be hidden. It can't be suppressed. It can't be costumed. It can't be covered over. We need to see in her ourselves and our own desperation and our own need for Jesus' mercy. He is the Son of David, our one true hope. We must be looking to him for mercy. That's the first thing. And the second thing that we see here is we must also be looking to him for faith, stronger faith. And we see that, rather hear that, in what he says to her. And the order, the flow of this, and this exchange, this puzzling exchange between the two of them. So let's look at this. What is, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Well, of course, initially, he says nothing. He says absolutely nothing. He hears exactly, it's not that he's hard of hearing. He hears exactly what she's say, saying. He knows exactly what her need is. And he says absolutely nothing. Stone-cold silence. It's shocking. It's so surprising to us. It begs some questions. Why? What's going on here? And then, as though that's not enough, this initial silence, then you have that followed up by these, oh my goodness, then what he says, it's like, Jesus, you'd be better off saying nothing. You have these puzzling, this stunning silence, and then these puzzling words that he actually does say. You see this in verse 24. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is oppressed by a demon. Uh, then we skip on down there, and the disciples plead with him, and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. Now, now what's going on there is he is speaking to his mission, why it is he has come, the specificity and the purposefulness and intentionality of why he has come within the larger framework of God's plan of redemption to work through the Jewish people, coming to the Jewish people, and then to all the nations. There was an order. There was a sequence. There is a, a plan unfolding, and Jesus is speaking to that in that, that terse statement. And you see it coming up in this axiom, something of a proverbial uh, response of his that comes up again in just two more verses, so you keep on reading. He says that, and then she clearly is hearing what he has just said to the disciples. And we read in the next verse, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, understand that in that context, it was common, given the animosity between Jew and Gentile, for the Jewish people to refer to Gentiles as dogs. But Jesus is doing something really interesting here. He's not using the sort of word that typically a Jew would use for a Gentile regarding dogs. It's different words for dogs, okay, within the language. He's not using the word for stray dog. You know, the, the, the mutt, the mongrel, that we would, you know, don't, don't touch that thing. It's disease, filthy, all that. He's using the word not, not for, for stray dog, but for puppy. For house pet. So it's really interesting what he's doing here. It's, it's like he's closing the door, but leaving it cracked at the same time. Now why? You've you got to know he's not doing this to be cruel, but it's actually a deeper kindness that he has in mind. What's going on here? What is... It's to, to at least these three things. To test her faith. To test her faith, to yes, to put these obstacles right in her path, and to to put cause some resistance, to test her faith and to strengthen her faith, to draw her out, to force her, to put her into a position where she has to keep pressing into him. He's not making it easy, you see. He's doing this to test her faith, to strengthen her faith, and then one last thing to praise her faith. To, he, he's doing this, and then he, at the end result is he's praising this faith that's being tested and strengthened all the while. Look at verses 27 and 28. What's going on here? She says in response to this, like almost this, this debate or, or a, a match, it's almost like she wins, or he, in essence, lets her win. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman. And by the way, that's not like a, a slam. The, the, the sense of that is, oh, dear lady. That's, that's the sense of it. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Publicly. This is not privately. Publicly. Jesus is praising, exalting this Woman's faith, having been tested and strengthened, it is now publicly praised. Jesus is intent on building stronger faith in the heart of this dear woman. And we need to chase after him, to pursue him, to do the same thing in us. To build stronger faith 
in us. Think of it this way. Oftentimes in marriage, people give up way too soon. They give up way too soon. You need to stick it out. Push through those first few years that are bring inevitable trials and difficulties and, 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 and arguments. All that is normal. All that is normal. You need to stay the course and push on through because the, the better chapters, the better stages are yet to come, but you've got to go through that gunk to get to that. We tend to give up too fast. Our faith struggles. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. We tend to give up too soon. But the questions that come, the uncertainties that come, the doubts that come, that's all normal. That's all completely normal. It's not the time then to just give up and throw in the towel as Jesus seems to be just silent. And what he seems to be saying is not terribly kind. But it is loving and merciful and good. Push through, not give up. Push through. Press in. Press into him. And wait. He is the son of David. He's our one true hope. We have to look to him not only for for mercy, for deeper mercy, but for deeper faith. Which then takes us to the last thing. For stronger love. For stronger, deeper love. Now, we see that in his engagement with this other party that's kind of in the wings, watching, listening, the disciples. The disciples. Jesus is setting them up. He really is in love. He is setting them up, and we know that. He knows the animosity in their hearts towards this woman and everyone in this region. I understand if I had a map, we could just kind of you know, laser point and show you, but this, this is about, well, it depends on what area of the region of Tyre and Sidon that they're in. It could be you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles, but it's northeast of where they have been, right on the, the Mediterranean coast, that area. And historically, culturally, these were, this region, these people in this region are among the Israel's, in the Old Testament era, greatest enemies. This is where Jezebel came from. That name rings. How many of you have named your daughters? That, that name really doesn't go anywhere anymore, right? And there's a reason for that. Okay. Um, some of you are going to come to me. It's like, well, actually. Um, uh, th this region, the people, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon, the, the Canaanites, were, were known for their materialism, known for their, their worship of Baal, Baal depending on how you want to pronounce that. Okay? So Jesus knows the animosity in his disciples' hearts towards this woman and the people of, of this region. They're probably wondering, why in the world are we here to begin with? And, and they, they are, he's, he's setting them up in how they are likely expecting him and think he is responding. How do they think he's responding so far until the very end? Oh, he's giving her the cold shoulder. Oh, he's you know being kind of rough with her. He's not really giving. You know, he's he, this is oh this is great. This is exactly what we would do, and we're so glad to see you doing it. Whoa, 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 what? He has set them up. He has set them up in order to send them out. 
He has set them up in order to send them out. Their mission is going to be to go to all nations. Right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the world. To all nations. To all outsiders, no matter what that line may be. To all outsiders, to all the peoples, with this message upon their hearts and upon their lips, that Jesus, the Son of David, delights to hear the cry of anyone who comes to him in faith. Anyone. But in order to prepare them for a mission like that, he has to deal with their prejudices. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And you think in terms of a teaching moment and how unforgettable this had to have been to his disciples. You see, the, the delay in that healing, Jesus, of course, could have healed that woman's daughter first time he heard it. He could have done it before she said anything. But he's waiting. He's waiting not just for her sake, but for the disciples' sake. You see? Not just to build up and strengthen her, but to build up and prepare them. It's not just for her sake, but for uh, theirs as well. That their love would be greater. And oh, my friends, we need to be looking to him to do the same thing in our own poor hearts. Desperately, desperately so. I mean, I, I think back to all the... I mentioned Billy Graham in the last week, and I just want to do it one more time here this week. You know, the funeral was, of course, this, this past week, and uh, laying in state up there in D.C., and then brought back to Charlotte for the uh, the funeral. And, and some of you may know that uh, in the in the course of the, the last few days, uh, how much attention rightly has been brought to the whole corpus of Graham's ministry. And one of the things that's worth noting is the friendship between Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. Not a lot of people know about this. On Graham's invitation, they stood there together at a, at a, a, a rally um, there in Madison Square Gardens in 1957. I mean, this is before really Martin Luther King Jr. was Martin Luther King Jr. This is before really Billy Graham is well, becoming Billy Graham, if you will. Um, the, um, and Graham himself... I should add, also was known even as early as 53. We've got records of his staunch unwillingness to let those crowds be segregated, no matter where in the country he was, which really caused a bit of a stink in some of the cities of the South. Um, his, uh, both those men, over, over years after this, spoke so highly of one another, of their friendship with one another, a great admiration to one another. And I'm not, but please don't hear me, I'm not going to saint either one of them or lioness or canonize. They, they on their own mission, had their flaws and, and, and their weaknesses. I, I'm not lifting the men up, I'm lifting up the gospel. That which brought them together. That which made them one in a common cause. The cross of Christ and the good news of the kingdom of God. How can our love be grown in such a way as to overlook all the barriers and lines that we draw up or have drawn up for us. The, the key thing, the critical thing, is to cast our eyes on his love for us, that we might have larger love, greater love, deeper love for everyone around us. Now, but, the, but to love that way, to love 
in the way that we have been loved requires that we know how we have been loved and are loved. You see, it takes loving as we have been loved, but to love as you have been loved, you have to know how you've been loved in Jesus and are loved in Jesus. I mean, really, we read ourselves into the story, and rightly so, understanding we are this woman. We are this woman in her need, and in terms of what the disciples thought she deserved, that's exactly what we deserve. And in what she actually received, a welcome, that's exactly what in Jesus we receive. Jesus is the son of David, our one true hope. We must look to him for greater love. That's our only hope. It's our only hope. And I, I stress this point, just wrapping this up, I stress this point. We have to look to him as our one true hope, as the son of David, because of the very real danger of mirages out there. Now, scientifically, what's a mirage? It's, a, uh, it's an optical illusion, really, is what it is, caused by certain atmospheric conditions out there in, in a hot context. And the shimmering of the light, it's, it's a refraction of light that causes a place, tricks on the eyes, seeing something that's not there. In many cases, in most cases, what looks like water out there on the horizon. But it's not there. It's not there. That's okay. So that's a scientific explanation, you know, background. It's a great plot device, right? I mean, how many times have you, you heard it or, or watched, seen it on a, on a TV show or on a film? You know, you've got this group of people, maybe it's just one lone traveler making their way across this dry, arid, barren area. And they're on, nearly dying of thirst, or maybe dying of thirst, actually. And then they see it out there over the horizon. Ah, water. And they start moving. Now, if. If what they're seeing is real, then okay, we're good. But if it's not, well, then that's it. And we are surrounded by, you and I, the weary travelers in very dry, arid conditions. We are surrounded by mirages. Over there, and over there, and over there. On every horizon we can look. False promises and empty hopes, shimmering, glimmering out there, beckoning, come. And there's only one. There's only one. And he is the son of David. And it's to him we must look. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so much more than we Expect we, these two-dimensional creatures, coming to you as the three-dimensional God. Um, we have our expectations, we have our assumptions, we have our timetables, we have our plans. And we assume that it all must be, well, yours must be like ours. And here we see your plans and purposes, your mercy your love, your kindness is so much better. Perhaps harder, but better. We ask that you would 
Help us to long and thirst for true mercy, for true faith, for true love that is deeper, better than anything we could ever muster up or anything some charlatan could promise. Thank you for these lessons here. Thank you for this record here of your interaction with this dear lady and your love for her and your love for us. We pray this in your son, your name, your name. Amen.